You're listening to ReachMD on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Inspired to Act, featuring international leaders in the field of medicine. Inspired to Act is presented by PrimeMed, your leader in continuing medical education. Here is your host, founding chair, Department of Neurology, Brigham and Women's Hospital, professor of neurology at Harvard Medical School, and senior medical advisor for PrimeMed, Dr. Martin A. Samuels. What happened to all the great clinicians? Are they all turning into technicians? Are there perils in too much preventive medicine? Is there anything we can improve in medical schools to turn out better 21st century doctors? Joining us to discuss these and other questions is renowned internist, professor of medicine, and associate dean of humanities and bioethics at the University of California, Davis, Sacramento, Dr. Faith Fitzgerald. Welcome, Faith. It's great that you're able to join us at Inspired to Act. Marty, it is my pleasure. Let me start, Faith, with a question about some of the traditional values in medicine. And we all know that there have been huge changes, advances in biomedical science, genetics, imaging, certainly us in neurology. This is an extremely important thing. And one begins to wonder, talking to some of the younger people, is there any place left for the old virtues, sitting by the bedside with the patient, taking the history? What do you think about that? You know, of course, as a clinician and as a teacher, and now 65 years old, I am wed to sitting by the bedside, taking a history. Years ago, T.S. Eliot said a wonderful thing. I think it was in the 1940s, but applicable to medicine today. He said, where is the wisdom we have lost in knowledge? Where is the knowledge we have lost in information? Young doctors tend to spend a lot of time acquiring information, which is data, and not necessarily applicable to an individual. To know how to do that is a doctor's knowledge, and to decide what to do about it is a doctor's wisdom. The young folks are engaged now in more or less learning information and how to do things. I think, given their character, however, in my impression of them, is that they will learn wisdom over time, as we did, experientially. But they have a harder task doing it because they've got to circumnavigate a system that actually blocks patient-physician interaction. People are always saying uh, things are different now. They've always changed so dramatically. Do you think that's really true? I mean, I remember in medical school, they told us then we were at the cutting edge. Everything was changing. It would never be the same. And now we're saying the same thing again. Do you think we're just replaying the same old record over and over and over again? I think we do. And to a degree, it's true, though, Marty. There are new techniques, new diagnostic processes, new procedures, new surgeries, new ideas. And may there always be. I mean, that's the advance of science. The question is, how do we learn to use them properly in the care of human beings. That is, in my opinion, also been changed to the degree where we don't have time to think anymore. And the thing that I, as a teacher of house staff and students, am afraid of is that they don't have as much time to contemplate, to think, to discuss the uses of these new data and these new techniques as we used to. So it's going to take them longer, I suspect, to learn the gifts that we got um, from the first 10 years, let's say, of medical school house officership and postgraduate training. But one of the things I've, I hear a lot about is simulation. I'm sure you hear about this as well, to use simulated patients, to use uh, computer models to try to save time, to keep the students away, actually, from the living patient. My own feeling about this is it's sort of deprofessionalizing. I mean, it almost uh, gives the younger person the idea that they can't be trusted with live human beings. I wonder what your take is on the whole idea of simulation and teaching medicine. Interestingly enough, the, the term that I've heard most often is standardized patient, which to me is an oxymoron. I mean, there is no such thing as a standardized patient. It denies each patient their individuality. 
I think that simulation is great for procedures. I mean, to learn how to stick things into things can be done very well by simulation. To learn how to do a history and physical on a so-called standardized patient is uh, folly, if for only the reason that standardized patients are hired actors, and they cannot possibly manifest the physical examination, which is the corporeal evidence of the history that is so intertwined with the physical. So glad to hear you say that, because certainly as a neurologist, we look at patients and we try to decide whether something is, quote, real or not, so that if a person could actually feign something so perfectly as to fool the examiner, what you basically would have is an incompetent examiner, someone who couldn't tell the difference between an actor and a real disease. And that's what I'm afraid of in this simulation business. They actually, my students, and I wonder if some of the audience haven't had the same experience, don't like the simulated patients because of that very fact. They say they don't fit because they know that they're History and physical is a constant intellectual dialogue that you take clues as to what questions to ask from what you see on the patient, and you use the history to direct what you're looking for on the physical, that they cannot be separated. So I think that our young people know that. Again, for procedures, I think standardized patients are fine. But for history and physical, I think it's a delusion. Let me ask you something about the errors phenomenon that's going on. And there's so much talk about errors. And in, in some ways, it's been tough on doctors to hear that they're making so many mistakes. The result of this Institute of Medicine report that alleged that there were so many deaths from errors in medicine. What is your take on that? Do you think that's an exaggeration? Do you think it's real or what? I think that it depends on the definition of error. A lot of it has to do with complications that, in fact, used to be accepted as part of the risk-benefit ratio of certain procedures, urinary tract infections from folio catheterization, sepsis from IV indwelling lines, and so on. Now, also, we have nosocomial infections that are going from patient to patient and from outpatients to inpatients. And I believe that the delusion of control is that, you know, if only we were smart enough, we could stop all of this. I think certainly we can do better but that errors will always occur in medicine. It is a human enterprise that uses science as a tool. It is not a scientific enterprise, but one that has error built into it on all sides. Moreover, physicians aren't the only agents now in medical care. There's so many people moving in and out and doing things that uh, we don't even know where the errors come from. One of the ironies in all this is that uh, actually errors are basically the machine that drives advance. Without any errors, things would never change. And in fact, I give a talk myself, which is called My Mistakes, in which I actually present my errors and try to say something about what category of error I made. I certainly don't have the delusion that I could ever stop making all my mistakes. I'm sure you must feel the same way about that. I do, and of course you and I both know, as do uh, experienced clinicians, that a lot is learned from error, a lot more from error than from apparently smooth progress. And, and in fact, when things are going too well, the really astute clinician will think that he or she just isn't seeing correctly because nothing can work this well. But there are certain techniques and standards, I think, that can be enforced. And it depends then again on the definition of error. If you don't wash your hands going from patient to patient, I think that's a methodologic mistake for which you should be held accountable because you can transmit infections. We know this. It's a simple thing, not very glamorous, certainly not as well compensated as a colonoscopy, but probably would save thousands of lives. If you don't put in a Foley for convenience, but only because the patient actually cannot pass urine or has a problem that requires catheterization, we will save thousands of lives. 
I think we have to concentrate on the things that we do that are simple and easy and can be standardized and take away those things that we do by rote that cause harm. And that is a better approach to error than saying never make a mistake, doctor, because that's impossible. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Inspired to Act on Reach MD Radio, XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Martin Samuels, and joining me to discuss clinician or technician and other topics is renowned internist and associate dean of humanities and bioethics at the University of California, Davis, Sacramento, Dr. Faith Fitzgerald. Faith, I, I read a very eloquent piece of yours about a suicide that occurred, a house officer, and it is, in a sense, a kind of a description of, a, of an error in a way, not recognizing it. It was courageous, I thought, of you to publish this. I wonder if you'd be willing to say something about your thoughts about that case. I would. This was a very talented man who was just a lovely, lovely young man and who became depressed. In retrospect, and my flaw as then house staff director he had had some periodic depressions in the past and i had not known that his depression took the form of feeling as all of us do but with him an exaggerated uh, perception of one's own inadequacy you remember how we were as house staff how we should still be as graduate physicians constantly worried that we're doing the wrong thing or not doing it well enough a modicum of that drives us to excellence too much of it leads to despair, immobilization, and in this young man's case, suicide. The selection process that medical schools use selects for obsessive compulsives. We like them. We think they're the sort of people that should be looking after patients. That obsessive compulsivity is associated with an increase in depression. And Physicians tend to have a greater degree of alcoholism and depression than other people, probably not because it's caused by the, the field, but because these are the people we select. And for that reason, I should have been better at perceiving it. I should have been better at receiving his despair. He and I had spoken. He asked for some time off. I gave it to him, and when he took that time off, he went home, and in his terror and his grief, literally slit his own throat. And I will never forgive myself for that. And it taught me always, always to look beyond you know, what the house officer is telling me is wrong to try to find out as much as I can to make certain that it's not deeper and worse. It was very courageous of you to write that up and publish it because not many people would talk about it. Obviously, one can learn a lot from an experience like that. It's a very sad story, but a very important one. There was another thing that you did, and I think is really uh, applicable to our theme on this program, which is uh, Inspired to Act, which is that you wrote something about what doctors should do about these pay-for-performance issues that are coming up, and you basically called on doctors to not take that money, that it was a bad thing to do, and that they should step up to the plate and not cooperate, which is a very courageous thing to do. A lot of people are listening to you now, doctors and other medical professionals. What would you tell them about that? Do you think they really should ignore this, not take the incentives that are going to be offered to them on these paper performance standards? I would ask us all to ask ourselves, who do these people think we are? Are we waiters? Are we taxi drivers? Do we work for tips so that if we please, they, we get a little extra money? I would say that to accept this is degrading for us. It's unprofessional. Each of us should do the very best we can for this patient now because that is our promise to this patient now. Not because 
some agency outside says this is on my list. And if it is on their list and they pay for it, but we don't think it's necessary and do it anyhow, then we have actually committed, in effect, a moral error by doing something unnecessary to get extra money. I find the whole thing a shame, and I am ashamed that we're going along with it. I believe, as a profession, we should say no. Do you think that uh, organizations like the American College of Physicians, in which you're very active, ought to stand up and really say something about this in a more courageous way? What do you think? I do. I think that we should say no. I also think that we should say to the people who are, in a sense, telling us how to practice medicine, that, look, here's who we are. This is what we do. These are the resources we need to do it extremely well. If you'll give us those resources, we will do the best we can. That's the professional approach, as opposed to being told how to practice medicine, which is, in my opinion, what we're suffering now. I want to thank my guest, internist and professor of medicine and associate dean of humanities and bioethics at the University of California, Davis, Sacramento, Dr. Faith Fitzgerald. Thanks so much for spending time with us uh, this week on Inspired to Act. Thank you. You've been listening to Inspired to Act on ReachMD on XM160, the channel for medical professionals, featuring international leaders in the field of medicine, hosted by Dr. Martin A. Samuels and presented by PrimeMed, the leader in continuing medical education. At PrimeMed, we believe in you, the practicing healthcare professional, and we support your commitment to your patients. Our goal is to give you the tools to stay up to date with the latest developments in your field, whether you treat day-to-day patients and their average and not-so-average illnesses, or patients dealing with diverse chronic conditions. PrimeMed CME programs are designed for you. We know you each learn differently. That's why we offer education in a variety of formats. Live because you like to interact with peers and faculty. Online because it's convenient and available to fit your schedule. And in print because of its portability. Regardless of the medium, PrimeMed delivers knowledge that touches patients. PrimeMed CME is developed through extensive collaboration with leading professional associations, academic institutions, hospitals, technology companies, and over 1,500 prominent faculty. With over 120 live meetings and 300-plus online CME activities, 350,000 healthcare professionals globally trust PrimeMed as their source to stay better informed and educated in today's always-on world. We invite you to join us in person at an innovative, cutting-edge meeting and clinical education program. If it's more convenient, visit PrimeMed online. For more information, visit www.pri-med.com. That's www.primed.com. Thank you for learning with PrimeMed.